Henson Hasty. I'm the Senior Director of Theological Education Funds Development at the Presbyterian Church USA Foundation. Um, work uh, with the Committee on Theological Education uh, in support of future ministers that go to seminaries like Columbia Theological Seminary, where our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Christine J. Hong, is um, a professor, assistant professor of educational ministries. Um, and we'll be talking about decolonializing learning in the church, um, something that she's been working on for quite some time and uh, becomes more and more important um, by the day. Uh, it's an urgent need. Um, and hopefully, I feel like others are giving some attention to this in new ways. And it's partly because of your work. Uh, Mark Koenig, Jen James are giving shout outs. Uh, Rebecca Malozzi from Pennsylvania, one of our frequent uh, uh, watchers. But thank you for what you do, who you are, um, and um, for being here today. Thank you. And hey, Mark. Hey, Jen. It's always good to see. This virtual stuff is like really new to me still in terms of like um, these live podcasts and things. So it's really fun to see how it connects people. Good, good. Well, thanks again. I said earlier when we weren't live, I'm so grateful. And the folks, if you haven't seen the presentations, the keynote addresses and the conversation that Christine uh, shared over this past weekend at the Next Church National Gathering, I want to encourage you to to go back, purchase uh, that if you haven't already for your church or yourself, it's totally worth the time. And um, put on your list already, and it's going to be in, it's an ebook form from the publisher is your newest book on this title, published just uh, this month. Um, and I'm making sure I have the title right Decolonial Religious Education. No, that's not correct. That's an article. It's right De here. <laughs> oh, there, there it is. is. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, it's called such a beautiful cover. Thank you. I, I didn't know if it would come out well, but um, I love it. And it's called Decolonial Futures, Intercultural, Interreligious Intelligence for Theological Education. So you can get a hard copy and you can get a discount also through Lexington if you buy it straight from the publisher. So I was going to say go to mm -hmm. the publisher and that's the link mm -hmm. I think we're, we're putting in the chat. Um, and there's an ebook uh, I think you can buy through them. Yes. also. So mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping uh, all that's going to um, get that out to others because it's so important. Um, uh, there are so many things I could say. I remember distinctly re meeting you for the first time. Um, Christine has had uh, multiple stops along the way, mm -hmm. one of which was in the Office of Theology and Worship at the PCUSA. Our, our offices were next to each other, but we were like ships in the night because yeah. she was the, the National Council of Churches and uh, World Council of Churches and all, doing all kinds of things, along with finishing your PhD. I don't know how you did that, um, but uh, has been teach, teaching at Louisville Seminary. She taught at Claremont uh, as well, where she received her, TH, her, uh, her PhD. Um, she is a graduate of Princeton Seminary, MDiv, and THM, and uh, one of my favorites, the University of Washington, mm -hmm. um, for your undergraduate degree. I'm a big fan of the University of Washington rowing team. You know, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. On the canal. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, big, big deal. But um, such a gift. We're putting her um, uh, CV and bio in the chat, and I hope you'll check that out um, because there's so, it has a list of presentations, as well as other articles she's written. Uh, she was part of that planning team. Some of you know Christine from Montreat, the uh, co-conspire and um, disgraced uh, anti-racism conferences there. 
Um, maybe you know her from the Forum for Theological Exploration where she's done presentations or the Wabash Center uh, where she is a, a, a mentor and involved, the Louisville Institute. Um, I'm, there's so many places you've touched. I don't know how you've done this, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and also as a mother and uh, of small children and a spouse and, um, and a, many, many other things. So just thank you for who you are and how you do it and prayers for your continuing to, to be able to do what you do. Thank um, you. I need them. It, it, it makes it all good. Well, and so it makes me wonder something I often ask here I mean, is about what is it that makes Christine Hong come alive? Because you are certainly coming alive in so many beautiful ways. That's what Howard Thurman said. We needed those kinds of people. Katie Cannon, what is the work your soul must have? And I like from this weekend the way you describe um, the need for all of us, we are meant and called uh, to flourish, to thrive, to, to liberate, to have freedom, to live and to bless. So what is it that is making you uh, live to bless uh, and liberate, uh, be mm -hmm. liberated? Mm -hmm. I think um, lots of different things that I end up patching together, right? I don't think flourishing in my life has ever come from one thing that I do or one thing that or group or community that I participate in, but it's a living expansively into a lot of different spaces. And so for right now, what's making me flourish and keeping me flourish is slowing down as, mm. so I'm thinking a lot about this as we keep talking about like re-entry mm. post vaccination and the reopening of things like schools, as I don't know if anybody, you know, knows that Columbia has been virtual for a year now. Um, and I was actually virtual before then because I was teaching online the semester before as well. But um, that is giving me a lot of anxiety. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Lee, you and I talked about it before we started right. recording, but right. this idea that I don't think I know how to, I think I've out of habit, out of necessity to survive, have developed new ways of being and connecting that I've, I've had to learn to flourish in those ways. And so having to now come back into a, a now a, a, the space where we're like in touch again and doing everything in person again is giving me a lot of anxiety because I don't know if I know how to move in that way in my life through life anymore. Mm. Um, a year is a long time to have developed different ways of being and modalities of learning and um, right. It's also a long time to just sit with yourself by yourself <laughs> so, right, right. that we've all had to really do. So I think what's helping me flourish in the face of what is coming is slowing down, like mm -hmm. really slowing down and learning to honor my own embodiment and the ways in which my body and being are telling me about how I am. Mm -hmm. So instead of relying on and this is really hard in the academy and in the church, because I think we rely on other people to tell us how we're doing. I think we rely on like um, the, you know, the institutions, whatever they are to tell us, like if we're doing well, or if we're doing not, if we're not doing well, whatever reviews are coming up for you, right. performance reviews, pastoral reviews, parishioners telling us whether we're doing a good job or whether we preached a good sermon or not. I think we're, we rely on that. And in many ways, um, that actually puts us out of touch with who we are in our own embodiments. And so I'm trying to really honor like 
Like today I'm really tired. And so I'm asking myself, what are you going to do about that, Christine? (laughs) Are you going to push through it, you know, or are you going to give your body and your soul the things that it needs because it's telling you something? So I've learned how to do that in a different way in this time, this past year, especially. And so I'm trying to bring those forward into these new spaces. So that is what's helping me flourish. It's not the absence of anxiety or stress that creates flourishing. It's the how, you know, um, it's the listening in the midst of all of that, that makes that possible for me. It's a beautiful, um, yeah, beautiful. It's such a good reminder to, to all of us, um, I think. Um, I'm remembering early on in the pandemic, our family was sort of a new commitment to yoga. And I, I, I thought the other day, like, we, where, why do we stop that? I mean, to stop and breathe, notice your body, um, and, and take a step back. It's such an, you know, I was sharing with you earlier, so many colleagues have been telling me how tired they are. Maybe it's the, you know, here in Louisville this Saturday is anniversary of, uh, Brianna, losing Mm -hmm. Brianna Taylor, her mother. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also the, um, the pandemic, you know, come, you know, there's a lot, you know, weighing there and heard people talking about, you know, I'm, uh, kind of living in Lent for the last year. And, yeah. you know, even though Easter is coming, it doesn't really feel like it. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. Like flourishing doesn't necessarily mean more. Like we think flourishing means more and more and more. It may mean less and less mm-hmm. and less. Is, but mm-hmm. I'm, is that is that accurate at all? Yeah, or? because my <laughs> flourishing is going to actually sometimes, you know, for me to flourish as a woman of color, as an Asian woman, it might cause those who are in more privileged bodies to feel like they're not flourishing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because if you have to share space and you have to um, move in ways that are different, that are, that feel more restricted to you, if you're used to taking up a lot of space in order that people like me might take up my share of space or like live and flourish in the ways that I need to live and flourish, it's going to feel like uh, it's going to feel restrictive, right. For people mm-hmm. in dominant culture spaces. So yes, but that restriction is actually not restriction. It's actually part of your flourishing too. So this idea that like, no flourishing isn't flourishing if it's on the back of other people's suffering and oppression. So when I say we have to flourish together, I'm not saying that there's the same sort of flourishing occurring in every body or in every community. Some of us need to flourish in ways that are counterintuitive to the way that empire has told us flourishing looks like, you know? I heard you in the presentation, um, folks, you still need to get it from Next Church, but a little story about walking down the sidewalk that I feel like speaks to this, what you're saying in terms of making other yeah. space. Yes. There. So in the in the second keynote that you'll get if you are part of the subscription package, I'm talking about like white and Christian supremacist ideologies, which um, I keep having to talk about it because things keep happening and have happened since Christianity, right? So um One of the, there's a great article in the Leo by a a journalist, Hannah Drake, and she does this exercise of like moving, she's a woman of color and she's moving on the sidewalk and she's like, it's the, she calls it like the don't move off the sidewalk exercise where she's walking down the sidewalk and her commitment is I'm not going to move out of the way for white bodies, particularly Mm -hmm. white men. And she does it. And I actually was inspired by this. So I did this um, one afternoon in the middle of Decatur, 
where I said, okay, I am not going to move out of the way. I'm going to walk down the sidewalk and not move out of the way of the way of white men in particular. And so I did this exercise, but here's what I learned through it. I learned that it's not only that, you know, white men don't necessarily know how to move out of the way, right? When people are coming towards them, when particularly people of color, black indigenous and people of color are coming towards them, it's that I've conditioned my own body to move out of the way. Mm. So it wasn't so much that when people would bump into me because they would, nobody was rude about it. You know, people would be shocked and be kind of like, oh, sorry. And kind of, you know, move out of the way. But I actually had to stop myself from scooting out of the way or making space for white bodies, Mm -hmm. white male bodies um, Mm -hmm. in order. It's just, I have internalized so much of that. And that exercise is really eye-opening for me because it's, it's not only about what's happening out here, but what's like happening in here and what's happening in here. And as much as I talk about decoloniality in all of my work, I'm still working out the ways in which I'm living in the colonial machine and reifying and perpetuating it even in the way that I walk around, in the way that I make myself shrink to fit within this system and society. But, but it, it seems to me, I love that story. I mean, and, I, and it took some courage on your part to do that. And by the way, if you haven't walked around in Decatur, downtown Decatur, it's not a lot of green space. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of sidewalks and it's the road and it's, you know, storefront. So there's not a lot of um, a lot of room to move around most places down there. Um, it, it's, it's a great exercise, but also that shouldn't be just your responsibility, right? Really should be, especially I'll say, you know, if I, I'm not white male, but I, I should be noticing, I should see you and I should step, step aside. And that, I feel like that's helpful for work in life, but also in the church, especially like m- noticing enough to make room, particularly people of privilege. This should not all be, all be, um, this should not be responsibility of, of persons of color with less, less privilege, right? This should be particularly res, uh, responsibility of those who have it or assume that they do or have been conditioned that they should have this, this privilege. They walk around that way. Um, it seems in, in, in a, the PCUSA in a, in a predominantly white church. I mean, this is, we have lots of work and opportunity here um, for growth. And I'm thinking um, in the way we set agendas and the way we govern and the way, there's so many ways. This is not just Sunday school, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're talking about learning. I mean, this is about um, the kind of events that we plan. And I mean, there's, it, it, my mind goes, you know, a thousand ways at once. Um, Yeah. And I was reading um, an article recently that approaches this idea of the mental load through feminist lenses, right? So what is the mental load that women carry or femme people carry in society that male presenting people might not, particularly white male presenting people? And I actually think that that matters in Presbyterian spaces and ecclesial spaces and interfaith spaces too. Like Mm -hmm. BIPOC people have carry a mental load all the time in spaces that are dominant white cultural spaces, places Mm. that are like, um, you know, BIPOC people that aren't Christian carry that load doubly in spaces that are predominantly Christian as well, where it's like, you know, figuring out like who's walking towards you if you want to use that metaphor and analogy, right? Mm. That you have to figure out how to maneuver yourself around bodies that won't move for you. You Mm -hmm. know, ideas that won't move for you, like language and 
terms that won't move for you or become expansive to include you. And you have to figure out a way to maneuver around that to not get clobbered. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a mental load. Like I would love to be able to walk down the street and not worry (laughs) like that I'm going to run into anyone. I would love to be able to, you know, um, to be able to talk freely about some of this stuff that I write about in some Presbyterian spaces without having to prove with my body that my pain is real, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. without that being the, the first test all the time mm-hmm. of like, whether or not, you know, even this idea, like there are some people right now, this conversation around, especially anti-Asian racism, like is the oh. Asian experience right. of, xenophobia of perpetual foreigner of racism real and valid like there are conversations like that happening within my hearing and it just makes me wonder like the mental load that we take to prove our existence is vital for the flourishing of everybody um it's it's hard to explain that right but it's it and it's also hard to imagine life without having to take that load on but Mm -hmm. that's what it will take for me to flourish Wow. Um, so I want to, I want to use the word exorcism now. I mean, <laughs> uh, we need to reclaim it in the Presbyterian church, Christine, I think. You know, yeah. Yeah. Things like this that I just want God to exercise, you know, and remove, you know, um, and uh, because it's, it's painful uh, and it, it's powerful for you to be able to share it um, and others uh, who are able to do that. Um yeah, but it's a huge mental load. I know sometimes I feel like one, some ways you approach this, I've had this experience. I remember this image. It's, I think Jen Lee is the artist. It's a, it's one, of, it's like the, it looks like yeah. Rosie the Riveter, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, the image of We Can Do It Korea that you used. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this image of you, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so it's give, it gives me, and it gives me you know, it's an image for me too, a divine image. Like we can, we can do this, but it's a do it, we can do it together. Um, but artwork in general is something, is a way that I feel like you're able to help because it's hard to talk about, to mm-hmm. open up, you know, you have artwork there even just behind you, but I know you use art. I've heard, seen you do this um, in beautiful ways to expose the kind of coding, the white privilege coding and white racist coding that's all around us, mm-hmm. as well as to show, you know, um, a more liberating uh, kind of picture. I, I, I love this um, term you use. I'm, um, I think it was over the weekend, a, a lexicon of liberation. We need to expand our, our lexicon of liberation mm-hmm. and art may be a place to start. Yeah, art is definitely, I think, one of the places that are either really scary for some people or really freeing for some. So I love using art in my classes. I'm teaching two classes right now. Um, One of them, the only, we have six assignments all semester. I'm co-teaching this with artist, theologian Darcy Jarrett. And um, one of, I mean, there's only six assignments and every single assignment is a piece of artwork that kind of nests into the next one coming. Um, And I think that when you are able to use art as a medium for like as an epistemology, a way of knowing Mm -hmm. and a way of being in the world and a way of conveying your particular understandings of the divine, of yourself, of concepts that you're wrestling with, like it, it is a, it's a conduit for a different type of dialogue than many times seminary education allows for, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's been really fascinating 
being in this classroom. So they get two weeks to work on a project. And then every two weeks we meet to share what we've created. And I have been blown away, like every single time blown away. And I just keep thinking, I have to teach this class again immediately. Right. I am learning so much. And part of it, my own pedagogy around that using art has been to approach it in this anti-colonial way of not centering my own knowledge as teacher, but to bring my knowledge alongside or my own experiences alongside the knowledge that students share about themselves and their communities of accountability. So I'm just another voice in the conversation, not necessarily the person um shaping the conversation into what people funneling it into like these three outcomes that I want everyone to know. Right. Right. So I told them like, I don't know what will happen week to week. I don't know what will emerge and it's up to the spirit and it's up to how we each listen and engage and create, um, and kind of function encouraged to be able to, to speak the truth that we're hearing and understanding about ourselves and about God. So every week has been an adventure. Um, it is phenomenal. I don't think you have to be this, you know, professional artist, engage arts to appreciate it and also to receive its impact either. So we have students in this class that have majored in sculpture and students who have never drawn anything their entire lives and are learning to do this, but it's powerful to see what is emerging. We just, uh, we're working right now on a project called You Are Iconic, where students are writing icons of themselves. So they're rendering their own images into icon. Wow. That, that is beautiful. I mean, not your typical learning goal, but I mean, it sounds like a really good one. I mean, what I hear is like, let's go on an adventure, uh, a divine adventure of the spirit that will encourage um, us all and um, help us grow. Uh, and we, we don't know what we will encounter. I mean, it's an um, actually an amazing learning goal. It's, it's making me think, um, you know, someday I keep saying God might release me back to parish ministry. I feel very called to do what I do, but I will do confirmation a whole nother way than mm-hmm. I think, you know, which was very linear, you know, and learning certain things. And we did a great job with it. I mean, you do need to learn some of those things, you know, Katie Cannon's in my ears, like you need to know that and know, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, know these mm-hmm. other things, but um, it seems very powerful. It makes me think the Association of Theological Schools are real particular about libraries, mm-hmm. you know, as part of accreditation. Maybe they should be particular about museums, <laughs> you know, uh, too, or as much so, if not more. I mean, I, I love the project. I'm trying to remember the name of the student. She's in Ann Arbor now, who did Columbia student who did the photographs mm-hmm. um, from past faculty and people at Columbia and present. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was really powerful that sort of, I don't know if that's still exhibiting at Columbia. Yes, but we haven't been in our buildings in like yes, you're right. <laughs> all of yeah. a distant memory, but um, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, uh, what do you think is, um, if you were to invite people to start, if they're just starting this sort of journey to understanding about um, decolonializing, teaching and learning and preaching and worship, or mm-hmm. whatever is their call, whatever they're up to, mm-hmm. what would, where would you invite them to start? Um, I think that we have to first understand that talking about 
decolonizing and actually doing it is very different mm-hmm. that we, that's helpful, <laughs> especially as Presbyterians love to talk about the concepts of liberation because talking about them as concepts also is just a colonial move because it helps you own those concepts. Right. You mm-hmm. master them, you learn the language that gets you mm-hmm. into those conversations that are happening, you know, outside of the bodies that actually are longing for those things. And I think that we have to start from a place of understand that in order to be, to decolonize in this context in North America require it's simple. Like the land needs to go back Mm. to the people that it was stolen from, you know, Mm. indigenous activists and theologians, um, indigenous decolonial educators are very clear about this. Wayne Yang and Eve Tuck write about this, like decolonizing isn't a synonym for social justice. It literally means return the land. And so like if the church really wants to be a decolonial entity and it Mm. embodied, you know, whatever it wants to be, right. Whatever, like part of that is going to have to be, if not all of it, the return of land. Um, (laughs) And that's, I mean, you know, like that's where we end up. That is how it happens. And it's not, and that's what I mean by it's not just a conversation about a concept, but it's a very real giving back what we stole, Mm. you know, Um, and allowing flourishing. And this is what I'm talking about. This mutual flourishing is going to be painful for people who have flourished off of other people for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's this, you know, understanding flourishing in a way that is often very painful for people in places of power and the church, the white church is included in that, you know, it's in a place of power. Um, it has been, it's locked that down. It's stolen. Um, I was just reading about how the church has, we still haven't called out the many ways in the, in which the church has been complicit in like the, the murder of so many indigenous children. The abuse of so many indigenous children, the erasures of languages, of names, of cultures, of entire peoples. Um, And so how do we, it's not enough that we decide to write it, although it's, it's great, you know, to write and to confess in writing Mm -hmm. those complicities and those violences, but it's not enough, right? That's not, that doesn't get us to decoloniality. It's a process of it's a process towards it, right? But so that's that's what I want to say is like, if you really want, if we as a church really want to be decolonial, it's about land back. It's about um, understanding that we have to give up those seats of power. It's not enough to make room, I'm sorry to say, at the table if you, if you still own the table. Like, it's just not. Like, I need you to, I need you to back up. I need you to get off that table. I need you to let me, right. I need you to like remove yourself so that there might be another space of gathering that isn't a table, right? Like, wow. um, and that's what I hope. And that's also going to disrupt me, right? Like that's um, because I also in my own embodiment have power and privileges as well. I teach in an institution of theological education that as try as it might to be a space that resists empire still functions within those codes and places of being. And so I'm complicit in that by that very nature that I take a paycheck from this institution. So it's going to disrupt me too, 
but it's, are we willing to do that? Because I don't want to have conversations about decoloniality that are just code for how much can we talk about it? You know, while everybody else is like, I'm waiting for it to actually happen. Um, I'm interested in the doing of it. And I want to see that I want to be part of a church that is ready to do it. It's like when colleagues ask me, like, how do you decolonize a syllabus? You know, how do you make a syllabus less white? I'm like, I don't really want to talk about that. I just want you to do it. It's not actually hard at all, <laughs> you know? And it's not about getting rid of all white voices either. It's about being critical about the white voices we bring in. Like, do they amplify the... Mm the voices of BIPOC people, right? Do they amplify those? Are they accountable? Are those voices accountable right. to other communities that don't look like them or think like them? Um, because if they are, then there's space, but they're not going to be at the center. So it's, yeah, I mean, I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, I'm ready to do it and I'm doing it, you know, slowly in my own way. And I, I want to be part of those conversations and not necessarily conversations about like, is this a worthwhile endeavor? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, uh, um, gosh, so helpful. Yeah, uh, we, we, Presbyterians, you're right. <laughs> we, we talk about a lot of stuff for a long time and write about it and, and in, in theological education and more broadly, I mean, your, your, your call is just do it. I mean, get it done. And it's, it does feel like it starts with, I uh, heard in, in some of your talk um, over the weekend is, is talk back to those ancestors. You need to know who they are, what they've done, and then do something to reverse, you know, yeah. reverse, reverse what, what's been done. And I appreciate you saying it's not, this is hard work for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. not, and um, folks assume it's just, it's just hard work for people in privilege. It's a hard, mm -hmm. it's hard work for everybody involved. I can't believe our time is gone. Oh, we see, we, we, we need another, I don't know. We need how part long. two. We need part two. <laughs> you need rest. That's more important. <laughs> Take care of your body and soul and children and and um uh pass on the flavors. I love I love uh the passing on of the flavors at hand to your family and uh, all that you do, Christine. Thank you so very much. Um I'm going to invite you to, to charge and bless us here in a moment. And let me say to everyone, thank you all for being here. If we didn't give a shout out, um, we'll reply on the, on the thread. But thank you all for being here and making time. Um, and join us in two weeks. Um, uh, Terry Ott, Terry McDowell Ott, who's uh, the dean of the chapel at Monmouth College uh, in Illinois, will be here to talk about her new book, her first book called 10 Risks privileged people should take. I think it's a, it's a good follow-up to today's conversation, um, and I hope you'll join us for that and into the future. Um, please be in touch. Um, thanks again, Christine, and, and blessings on you um, as, uh, as you continue to come alive and thrive, and I hope I can find ways to, to step aside <laughs> and give <laughs> to more people like you uh, on the sidewalk at, at the table, to take the table away, the Zoom away, <laughs> to amplify your voice and your action and, and follow you. So please never hesitate to ask how I, I can be of, of help to you and, and the uh, work that you're doing. Um, I, I know 
I am only joining the chorus of others who would sing uh, the same song. So um, thank you so very much. And if you would charge and bless us, I would be most grateful. Absolutely. And this is, you know, I guess what I want to remind people of in this time as we are vaccinating people and rushing towards like this reunion of life in a way that we thought we used to know, don't long for the past, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are entering into a time together as a society that is going to look very different. And instead of, and this is, I'm talking to myself too, you know, how is the spirit inviting us into those spaces as spaces of resurrection and also renewal and revolution, you know, that, um, how is it going to be different? How are you going to move your body in a different way and use your voice in a different way, particularly those of us with power and privilege? How will we do that? Um, how, how will we make the things that we fought for and spoke out against, right? Like, how will we continue to do that as the church and not forget about them? I'm always cognizant, yes, on this, this terrible anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder, I'm cognizant of, you know, that the fight for Black lives happens like in every space, every place, every time, that it's, we have to continue to press that forward. And that's my charge, right? Is that um, make sure that we're doing that as part of the work as the church in all spaces, not just in public spaces, like talk to your kids about this. You know, my, one of my uh, places that's near and dear to my heart in terms of like research and scholarship is the formation of children. You need to talk to your kids about anti-Black racism. You need to talk to your kids about xenophobia. You need to talk to your kids about not privileging the English language, like mm -hmm. so that all people, all languages can flourish where we are. Like we need to do that work. It's not just in public spaces that we do it or at conferences that we do it. It's the spirit is watching and witnessing us in mm. our private spaces too, you know? Mm. And so even as this is my charge, even as the spirit bears witness to us in our spaces of aloneness in our spaces of teaching our little ones, bear witness to the truths that others reveal to you about themselves and about community, bear witness to that. And then tell the truth in all that you do. Um, and telling the truth doesn't necessarily mean using words but tell it with how you function in, you know, the halls of power. Tell the truth in the ways in which you move aside so that mm -hmm. others and other bodies might be present with you in those spaces. Tell the truth in ways not that you lead, but the ways that you accompany and follow, particularly for those who are in places of power and privilege. And for all of us, be present in your body in this moment before, right, that great window and door opens towards reunion. Be fully present and listen to what your body and your spirit and your mind and your heart is saying about how you should be and who you are becoming in this new era. Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, thank you so much, Christine, and uh, blessings to everyone.